Well, good morning. It's always a thrill to be back in the class and be with the people that we have come to know and to love for so many years. And it's always exciting to have this time with you. I have to tell you, though, that God in kindness I do not deserve has allowed me to speak in over 60 foreign locations and in 48 of the 50 states. But there's nowhere I speak that my messages have the impact they have here. Because the last time I spoke here was in August of 2015. And and that means it's taken the class two and a half years to recover from that message. <laughs> I can't tell how excited I am about being back with you in October of 2020. But again, it's such a delight to have this time with you. I was asked if I would take a few moments and talk with you about the dinner that's coming up, our 45th anniversary dinner on April the 26th. Every year we have a luncheon but then every five years, we have an anniversary dinner. And this will be our 45th dinner, 45th anniversary, April the 26th, at the Crown Plaza. And I would love to have every single person in the marathon class with us because I think you completely underestimate how much of an impact you've had upon me personally and also upon our ministry. I would love to have every single person in the marathon class with us because of the impact you've had. And the reason I say that is for this reason. I've been privileged to be in evangelism for 45 years. I have never in my life seen a time when lost people are more approachable than they are today. I attribute it to four reasons. First of all, cancer. They're scared to no end. The doctor is going to say you have cancer. Terrorism, the economy, and then just the weirdness of stuff happening today, including the political campaigns, weather and everything like that. And for that reason, they are so approachable that people coming to Christ in our pregnancy center outreaches or in the foreign field, the pastor tells us of those coming to Christ that we've trained in underground churches in China. I could keep you all day with stories in one of our recent outreaches. The chief of police of the city came to Christ. I talked to him personally and he said, why in the world did I come to Christ sooner? Another outreach, a member of the city council, a prominent woman came to Christ. I just got an email from a pastor last week that said the two teenagers that came to Christ, their families are now coming to our church every single week. I've been in for 45 years. I have never in my life seen a time when non-Christians are more approachable. At the same time, I'm sad to say I've never seen a time in my life in 45 years that churches, I'm talking about the church as a whole, not a particular church, had lost its passion for the lost. And in some churches, they don't even exist anymore. And church leaders across the country are agreeing with me. The president of a seminary told me some time ago, Larry, what scares me to death is our professors are no longer talking to lost people. And it's going to take its toll on his students. I know of a prominent evangelical seminary. After this semester, they are no longer going to offer their one and only course of evangelism. They are no longer going to offer it. And so there will be not one course taught evangelism during your time there. And the church has always lost its passion for the lost. I've been invited to speak at a conference for all the New England states in September. And the one doing it, hosting it, said the reason is we have found our churches have lost a complete passion for the lost. And we're going to make the theme 
Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Last year was one of the hardest years we've ever had financially out of Intel. And the reason is, I call it, out of mind is out of giving. I have here a statistic from the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability that back in 2015, of the overall giving, the giving to evangelism was 7.1% in 2015. One year later, the giving to evangelism was 3.9%, almost half. And as far as I know, it's going to be even less in 2017. Out of mind is out of giving. And if people are not thinking about evangelism, if, if church are not emphasizing evangelism, then people are not thinking about giving to evangelism. And for that reason, last year is one of our hardest years financially. I said all that, though, to say that I praise you as a marathon class because you have been the exception. And this class has never lost its passion for the lost. And I say that for several reasons. First of all, I know how many you give out our server track when you get a meal at a restaurant and how much you like it. I have, every time I get with people here, they ask me about lost people come to Christ and lost are very much on your heart. Your own giving to evangelism, then as you well know, our dear Stan Tusing, Stan Tusing, every message he gave, he always closed it with an invitation for people to come to Christ. And you as a church have never lost your passion for the lost. And I thank God for that. And that's why I would love for you to join us at our 45th anniversary. Our theme is the unfinished task. When I started Van Tell in 1973, God really convicted me. I want a ministry that will go beyond you. And for that reason, our theme is the unfinished task. We're going to be releasing our five-year plan how we plan to go from our 45th to our 50th year. And we'd love to have you there. James Emery Wright, Wright is going to be our speaker. Different times people ask me, did you ever think Evangel would have the impact it's now had? My answer is, I think with the gift of evangelism comes a certain amount of vision for what God's going to do. At the same time, I'd be dishonest if I did not tell you it succeeded anything I ever thought. Because since 1973, we have been privileged to present the gospel to just over 38 million people. And we have had over 750,000 trainings in evangelism. And we plan to go, we're going to lay out the plan, how we're going to go from our 45th or 50th year. It's going to be an evening of celebration. James Emery White has been very effective in speaking to evangelizing today's culture and people. And please join us. If by any means you can be a table host, we'd love to have you be that. Being a table host does not mean you pay for the table. The whole thing's unwritten. It simply means you bring other people to join you and hear more about the ministry. Of all possible, we'd love to have you be a table host, but if you can't, just even come yourself. I'd love to have every single person here with us for that evening of celebration. The number is there in your bulletin. You can also see Mary Margaret after class and say, please uh, no, I'm coming. See my wife, Tammy. See me. Two people have already seen me already. And you can simply see one of us and we can put you down. But please, first of all, pray for the evening of celebration. But then also, if there's any way you can join us, we would just love to have you with us. Because it's going to be just that evening of celebration. Only one person in this class knows that there's going to be a special gift given that every single person who attends made possible by a generous donor a very special gift that will mean tremendous amount to you only one person here knows about that and i threaten their life if they tell anybody but please join us because you will love receiving that gift as a token of our appreciation a very special gift 
that'll mean much to you probably for the remainder of your life. But again, looking for that time, April 26, 6 to 9 at the Crown Plaza. And please join us by any means you can. Now, with all that said, what I want to talk about this morning is what's this crazy thing called discipleship? And why does God want you? And if you have your Bible, may I ask you to take it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 20. I always like people to leave knowing where God said first, while only going to repeat, or watch the screen in front of you. But I want you to follow me as I read, as we talk about what's this crazy thing called discipleship, and why does God want you? Notice how the paragraph reads. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and Andrew's brother, casting it in the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, and please say that sentence with me, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nests and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, many of their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. If you know anything at all about human nature, then you know that one way we are absolute geniuses is in making everything in life so much more difficult than it would ever need to be. And if there is a way of keeping something simple, we immediately avoid it. If there's a way of making something complicated, we are immensely attracted to it. And that ability to make life complicated permeates every single aspect of our being. For example, if you walk up to someone from China and ask him for some tea, within five minutes, they will bring you a simple cup of hot tea. But if you ask an American for some tea, they will ask you five different questions. Do you want cold tea or hot tea? Do you want it sweetened or unsweetened? Do you want sugar or sweet and low? Do you want one teaspoon or two? Do you want it with lemon or without lemon? And for that reason, someone from China says some time ago, those Americans are so confusing. They first boil their tea to make it hot. Then they put ice in it to make it cold. Then they put sugar in it to make it sweet. Then they put lemon in it to make it sour. When it comes to something such as bathroom facilities, years ago, your folks and my folks decided it was too much of a hassle to go out to what was called the outhouse. So we moved the outhouse in. Now we go out to eat. <laughs> when it comes to something like dating and marriage, if you go to a place like Delhi, India, the procedure is so simple because the parents find the bride for the son and their instructions are so simple. Marry her and love her. But we found out we can make it a whole lot more difficult than that. So when a couple becomes of marital age, they are expected to date anywhere from five to ten different people till they find the person they can be least miserable with for the rest of their lives. And then they're expecting, the guy expects to give the gal five different rings. There's, first of all, the going steady ring. That means, I think I'll marry you. Then there is a promise ring. That means, I plan to marry you. Then there is the engagement ring. That means, I promise to marry you. Then there is the wedding ring. That means, I have married you. That many people have observed, there is a suffering. That means, I'm sorry I married you. <laughs> Even the way a guy proposes his wife is so complicated. 
One time a guy said to the gal he wanted to marry, Without you life is dark and dreary. The storm clouds gather. The rain beats against the wind. The sun shines. Then comes the rainbow. And she looked at him, she said, is this a proposal or is this a weather report? And we take everything in life and we make it so much more complicated than it needs to be. And I'm convinced that's one thing that gets us into trouble when it comes to studying the Bible. Because we assume that God is just as complicated as we are. In fact, sometimes people miss the very fact that the most important question of life is, do you know if you're to die beyond any doubt, you go straight to heaven because your time on the other side of the grave is a whole lot longer than your time on this side. And for that reason, nothing is more important than your address five minutes after you die. And the Bible says you come to God as a sinner, you recognize Christ died for your rose, and put your trust in Christ alone as your only way to heaven. And then you can live as a person prepared to die and die as a person prepared to live. But the second greatest issue of life is, will you consider being a disciple? A person says, here's my life. You may use it as you please. He uses some people as preachers and some people as plumbers. He uses some people as executive assistants, others as effective store clerks. But if you were to ask the average person, why does God want you to be a disciple? You'd get a variety of answers. Because he wants to teach you how to love your mate. Because he wants to teach you how to love your enemy. Because he wants to teach you how to arrange your priorities. Because he wants to teach you how to raise your children. Because he wants to teach you how to manage your money. And all those, all those are important and have some merit. None of them are simple. As our first thing he ever said to the first disciples he ever called. And what is so exciting to me is he put it in language all of us could understand. I love the story of when baseball star Wes Parker was asked to do some emergency babysitting, and he consented to do so. But right after he started babysitting, a familiar crisis arose in which the baby diaper had to be changed. Wes Parker had no idea how you change a diaper. So he called a friend of his and said, how do you change a diaper? The friend knew to help baseball star Wes Parker he had to put it in language Wes Parker understood. And so he said to him, put the diaper on the table in the form of a baseball diamond with you at the bat. Now take second base and fold it over home. Now first and take first and third and tag them to home. <laughs> Wes Parker had no problems. In a few moments, the baby's diaper would change. And when God talks about discipleship, he puts it in language all of us can understand. Look at verse 18. And Jesus, walking by Sea Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother, casting that in the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, that is not hard to understand, especially if you realize you're talking about a day where there were not motorboats and fish locators. Instead, the normal way of fishing was to take a net 25 to 30 feet wide, throw it in the sea, it would drop captured a fish by surprise, then they pulled the net up the surface again. At the same time, being a man who loves to imagine what's happening behind the words of Scripture, I cannot help but wonder, we know from the Bible that Peter was married. How did he explain it to his wife when he came home many times, as we know he did, without catching one 
fish. The only thing I can guess, he must have stopped by a local supermarket and bought a few. I one time heard a man went fishing. He did not catch one fish. So he stopped by a local supermarket and he bought five of them. Then he said the man behind the counter, no, I want you to stand there and throw those at me and I'll catch them. And the man said, what in the world are you doing? And the fisherman said, that way I can tell my wife I caught five fish. I might be a lousy fisherman, but I'm no liar. At the same time, it's not what they were doing that matters. It's what he asked them to do that matters. Look at verse 19. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, will you please notice that in exhortation followed by promise. Let's look first at the exhortation. Look at verse 19. What does the exhortation say? It says what? Follow me. In other words, he does not say, I'll follow you. He says, you follow me. I'll be the pilot. You be the passengers. I'll be the captain. You be the stewards. I'll be the committee chairman. You be the members. I'll be the pilot. You be the passengers. Now, frankly, to some people, that would not be all that exciting because there are some people who have some negative ideas about what it means to follow Christ. I love the story of the boy who was so afraid to go to bed during a thunderstorm. And one day, as it was thundering to no end, his mother looked at him and said, no, this is ridiculous. Go upstairs, go to bed, goss up there, he'll take care of you. The boy went upstairs to go to bed. As soon as he hit the top stairs, a clap of thunder broke out. And he ran down to his mummy and said, you go up there and stay with God, I'm staying down here. <laughs> and to some people, it would not be that exciting. At the same time, they found it immensely exciting. And the question is, why did they get so excited? Because look at the promise he attached to it. A promise in verse 19 is, follow me, and the promise is, I will make you what? Fishers of men. Now, please notice, it does not say, follow me, I'll make you a great husband. Follow me, I'll make you a fantastic wife. Follow me, I'll teach you how to raise your children. Follow me, I'll teach you how to manage your money. Follow me, I'll teach you how to love your neighbor. Now, there's no doubt that following Christ helps in all those areas. But he said something so much bigger than that. Look again at the promise. Follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. One of Murphy's laws says that when you said something so simple, nobody can miss it. Somebody will. At the same time, I don't know how you missed those last 10 words because here is the main idea. I want people who will follow because I want people who will fish. That's the main idea. I want people who follow because I want people who will fish. In other words, the heart of God is a heart that's given and driven to evangelism. I want people who follow because I want people who will fish. Say it with me. I want people who will follow because I want people who will fish. Say it again. I want people who will follow because I want people who will fish. Say it again. I want people who will follow because I want people who will fish. The fourth time is always a charm. Say it again. I want people who will follow because I want people who will fish. And will you please notice 
they did not need a second invitation. Look at verse 20. They immediately left their nests and followed him. One time there was a grandfather who would go on long walks and talks with his grandson. It was such a splendid time together. And one time as he was about to leave, he said to his grandson, would you like to go with me? And the grandson said, where are you going? And the grandfather took off without him. When he returned, his grandson said to me, why, said to him, why didn't you take me with you? And the grandfather said, because you asked me where I was going. If you really wanted to go with me, it would not matter where I was going. Whether well, attitude was, if it's far as he wants, it's far as he gets. If it's fisherman he wants, it's fisherman he gets. And please notice, they did not, they, they were not the oddballs, because look at verse 21. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a boat with Zebedee their father, men their nets. He called them, and me, they left their boats and their, fa fa their boat and their father and followed him. What he was saying to them is, I want people to follow because I want people to fish. Now let's face it. To many people, evangelism is just not our thing. And even when we think of the subject, we become so frozen with fear. We're like the young girl who had a part in a Christmas play. All she had to do was walk out on the platform and say, it is I, be not afraid. But when she came time to do it, she walked out on the platform and said, it's me, and I'm scared. <laughs> so the question is, what did they understand that we don't? Why did they see it as a privilege? We see it as a pain. Why do they call it a blessing? We call it a burden. And I would suggest to you, there are two things they have heard him say, two observations that we completely miss. And that's why they got so excited. The first observation is there in verse, nine, verse 19. Notice it says, follow me and I will what? Make you fishermen. And the first observation is, I will make you fishermen. And I've found so many times people think that in order to evangelize, you have to be able to answer any question on Christian races, explain any verse in this Bible, refute any objection they bring up. And they realize what he was saying is, look at my note. You don't have to know anything, just follow. I'll teach you all you need to know. Follow me, I will make you fishermen. Because after all, the people I use are not the ones who are brilliant. They're the ones who are broken. Just follow me and I will make you fishermen. And if you do the learning, I'll do the teaching. He didn't say, follow me because you are fishermen. He said, follow me and I will what? Make you fishers of men. After all, when he started with them, they knew absolutely zero. They must have been as naive as a boy in Sunday school. And the teacher was teaching that story in the Old Testament of Elijah. As he was on his way to Bethel, some young people came along and mocked him out because he was bald-headed. And the Bible says, two bears came out of the woods and they ate 42 young people. And the teacher says, now what does that teach us? One boy raised his hand and said, after 21 kids apiece, bears are not hungry. <laughs> and they must have been just about that naive. And yet he taught them everything they need to know. Besides that, look who he had to work with. Look at Peter. 
that guy was so impulsive. So one time he saw Christ walking on the water. He said, tell me to come to you. Lord says, come on. Peter steps in the water. He looks at the sea and says, the Savior begins to sink. And he soon realizes it's one thing when you're in a boat in the water. It's another thing when you're in the water without the boat. On the one hand, he could be so courageous. On the other hand, he was one fat coward. So much so, someone one time said to him, you also were Jesus. He said, I've never met the man. <laughs> on the one hand, he could be so self-giving. On the other hand, he was so self-seeking. One time he said to Christ, we've left all to follow you. What are you going to give us for it? <laughs> Can you imagine how he must have proposed his wife? <laughs> He must have said, in light of the fantastic person I am, would you like the privilege of living with me for the rest of your life? I love the story of the mayor of Pittsburgh who was touring a construction site with his wife and she recognized one of the workers as a person she had dated before she married the mayor and she introduced them to one another. They continued walking. As they were walking, the mayor said to her, now, Aren't you glad you married me instead of him? He'd marry him. You would just be the wife of a construction worker instead of the first lady of Pittsburgh. She said, no, honey, you got it all wrong. <laughs> Had I married him, he'd be the mayor of Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if that's the kind of wife you meet or have, but I'm sure the kind of wife you need it. <laughs> but he heard them saying, follow me and I will make you fishermen. So much so. The first one Peter brought to Christ was his own brother. Not because he was a fisherman, because Christ made him a fisherman. Follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. But notice there's a second observation. Another one that we completely overlook. Observation number two. I will make you fishers of what? Men. I have found 90% of Christians miss, miss it. Look at the notes. A fisher of fish takes something alive and makes it dead. A fisher of men takes something dead and sees it become alive. And what he is saying is, with me, your life can have an eternal perspective. You've been taking something alive and making it dead. Welcome to first class living. Now you can take something dead and make it alive. And with me, you can experience first class living. As I've told people for 45 years and plan to tell them for the next 45, the only thing that can take with you to heaven is a friend. And they realize what he was saying is, with me, your life can have eternal perspective. You've been taking something alive, make it dead. Welcome to first class living. With me, you can take something dead and see it become alive. One time there was a boy in a candy store. He was going from container to container, trying to decide what he wanted to buy. Finally, his mother said to him, well, son, you've got to hurry. We've got to leave. And the son looked at mom and said, but mom, I only have one daughter. I've got to be careful how I spend it. They realized what he was saying. You only have one life. Please be careful how you spend it. And for that reason, I've said to beauticians, I'm delighted you're a beautician. But if as a beautician, God, you'd evangelize. Your life will count for far more than making people attractive. It'll have internal perspective. I've said to dentists, I'm the lot of your dentist. 
But if as a dentist, God could evangelize, your life will count for far more than keeping teeth healthy. I've said to CPAs, I am the lot of your CPA. But if as a CPA, God could use you to evangelize, your life will count for far more than counting money. You'll have a eternal perspective. I said to contractors, I'm the lot of your contractor. If as a contractor, though, God could use you to evangelize, your life will count for far more than laying sidewalks and building buildings. It'll have an eternal perspective. I spoke up in Oregon some time ago, and a doctor said to me, Larry, I got to tell you something. He said, a woman came to me for examination. I examined her very carefully, and then I gave her her prescription. And then I said, well, I think that'll be it. And she just sat there. I said, well, I think we'll finish, and just sat there. He said, well, I think that'll be all, and she just sat there. I said, well, I don't think there's any more, and just sat there. And so I said to her, is there something else? He said, Larry, she looked at me and she said, you mean you're not going to talk to me about God? I found out you're a Christian. I was hoping you'd bring up the subject. Allow me to ask you a few questions about him. And the doctor said to me, Larry, God used that woman to say to me, you're not here to be a doctor. You're here to be a fisher of men. And they were so excited because they realized what he was saying is, with me, your life can have eternal perspective. You've been taking something alive, making it dead. Welcome to first class of me. With me, you can take something dead and make it alive. And you might be saying, but no, Larry, what do I do? I've said to retire people, just like yourself. If God can use you to retire a person to evangelize, your life will count for far more than just raising children, grandchildren. It'll have an eternal perspective. And people have said to me, but Larry, what do I do? Don't forget, you do the following. He'll do the teaching. Follow me, I'll make you fish of men. But I could, could I use the acronym FISH to suggest four different things? And they are one. Find ways to develop contacts with unbelievers. Because you can't have personal evangelism without personal contact. And I know people like yourselves that every single week go to some place where there's unsafe people in attendance so they can rub shoulders with those who don't know the Lord because you can't save the saved. You can only save the unsaved. And therefore, you can't have personal manager without personal contact. And so they go to places where they can rub shoulders with people that don't know the Lord. Events, gatherings, dinners, whatever it is, societies that gives them contact with unsaved. Find ways to develop contact with unsaved. I initiate contact with the lost about spiritual things. Initiate contact with the lost about spiritual things. I know a surgeon that before he operates, he always says, I have a feeling somebody upstairs has been watching over you. That's all it takes to end discussion about spiritual things. I know of a doctor when you walk into his office, he has our may ask a question booklet all throughout the waiting area. And that has initiated conversations about the lost. And some have met the Savior before they met the doctor. I know of attorney has on the back of his business card, and this is the record that God has given us eternal life. That's initiated conversations about spiritual things. I know of insurance man that after he talks about insurance, he says, now we have spent time talking about insurance. Could I take a few moments and talk to you about assurance? 
and I met the people he had led to Christ. I know of people just like yourselves who have said to Lord's people, I've always told you about my last move. Let me tell you about my next move and why I am so excited. And find ways to initiate conversation with the laws. Thirdly, share your resources towards reaching the laws. Your time, your money, your energy, as some of you do so well. Because you have some time you've not had before, resources you've not had before, energy you give, and share your time and resources in helping the laws. And then fourthly, hold unbelievers up in prayer. Because the same time you're talking to them, God wants you to be talking to the lost. And could I ask you, when you look at your daily prayer list, how many unsaved are on that list? And there will be unsaved people on your list that you pray for every single day. And my point is, they saw him saying two things. Follow me, I'll make you fishermen. Don't have to know anything, just follow. I'll make you fishermen. And secondly, I'll make you a fisher of men. You've been taking something alive, making it dead. With me, you can take something dead and make it alive. I want people follow because I want people who will fish. And the question is, why does God want you to be a disciple? Because he wants to teach you how to use your retirement years. Oh, it's so much bigger than that. Because he wants to teach you how to spend your money. Oh, it's so much bigger than that. Because he wants to teach you how to respond to your grandkids. Oh, it's so much bigger than that. Because he wants to teach you how to love your neighbor. It's so much bigger than that. What was the main thing he was saying? Say it with me. I want people who will follow. Because I want people who will fish. Say it again. I want people who will follow. Because I want people who will fish. And if we miss that, we have missed the essence of discipleship. And it's amazing how in churches across the country today, we are missing it completely. I have even seen discipleship programs do not have one thing on evangelism during the entire program. And the first thing he taught disciples was, say it again, I want people who will follow because I want people who will fish. Jim Elliott is the name of a man, missionary, who, as you know, became a household word but a number of years ago, he was killed by the Alca Indians of Ecuador. It was discovered he had one time wrote in his diary, I want to be a fork in the road. When a man gets to me, he's got to go this way or that. Jim Elliott was a missionary, could have been a machinist. He was a preacher, could have been a politician, a plumber. Either way, he would have impacted people for Christ. Because Jim Elliot understood the essence of discipleship. The first thing Christ ever taught disciples, he got it. What was he saying? The first thing he ever said, the first disciple he ever called, what he was saying was, all together again, I want people who will follow because I want people who will fish. One time, man walked in the apartment store and he wanted to purchase an item. So he went back and he got the item. Walked up to the counter. He placed the item on the counter, waiting for a clerk that was available. And then he reached in his pocket and pulled out his wallet. Just as he did so, he dropped the quarter under the floor. And so he reached down to pick up the quarter. 
when he raised back up his wallet containing a hundred dollars was gone. While he concerned himself of something of lesser importance, he lost the most important thing of all. There are many things important to discipleship, but whatever you do, don't miss the most important of all. I want people who will follow because I want people who will fish. Now the question is, can he count on you? Let's pray together. This morning, as our heads bowed, our eyes are closed. First of all, if you have never met the Savior, you cannot be a disciple until you first become a Christian. If you have any doubt in your mind, if you die right now and go to heaven, please don't leave without seeing me, one of us here, because there's nothing more exciting than knowing, nothing worse than not knowing. And eternal life is a free gift because Christ paid the price. If you're here and you know Christ, let me ask you, have you said to him, I'll be your disciple? Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Recognizing one of the first things his all disciples was, follow me, I'll make you fisher of men. Whatever's going to be different in your life after this morning, don't tell me. Just take a moment and tell him. Our gracious Father, in a world where we make everything so complicated and confusing, sometimes we miss the first thing you ever said, first disciple you ever called. Lord, thank you for a heart of God that's so given and driven evangelism. And that's why we're sitting here today, because some time ago you drove somebody's heart towards us because you wanted us to come to you. Lord, I thank you for this class. I thank for how there's such an exception to the role, the passion they have for the lost. And I pray, Lord, you do nothing but increase that, that you might give them ways to have contact with the lost, initiate conversation, use their resources, then always hold unbelievers up in prayer. And I pray as we resolve our time together today, even the kingdom of heaven might be increased. And always keep in front of us every morning that the only thing we take with us to heaven is a friend. For we ask in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you.